It's either an internet that is insecure for everybody or an internet that is secure for everybody. People may be violating the Wiretap Act, which is just like an interesting, weird hiccup in the law. There's no way to know for sure whether or not the site you're connecting to really is who it claims to be. They justified every one of their fears, which is a little freaky. You know, really freaky. Really? Yeah, it's kind of scary. This is Snow Crash Radio, the podcast that explores the intersection between technology and power. I'm Jonah Meadows. Welcome listeners of the future. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about privacy, security, encryption, and big data. We'll talk about the hidden fight over your data with a fascinating and widely respected cryptographer and computer security expert, Bruce Schneier. And then later on, we'll hear about a certain piece of software that came pre-installed on laptops from the world's largest maker of laptops. And we're going to find out how that pre-installed bloatware can be used to intercept all encrypted web traffic and what a problem that might be. But first off, when it comes to these cloud-based home camera systems that are becoming more and more popular, what are the legal and ethical implications? Like, what if you're staying in an Airbnb and you discover someone's been monitoring you with one of these? Kashmir Hill is senior editor of Real Future at Fusion, where she writes about privacy and technology. Kashmir, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Jonah. Thanks for having me on. So a lot of people have started getting these pretty cheap home video cameras or Totally reasonable reasons. Um, <laughs> the most popular one is made by a company called Dropcam. And that company, Dropcam, it was actually bought by one of Google's subsidiaries last year. So Dropcam has these really great cheap cameras that will stream video to your smartphone in real time or send video up into the cloud. It'll email you when it detects motion in the house. And so this is great for people who are worried about home security. Drop cams have been used to catch burglars who have broken into homes because it captures footage of them. Some people who don't like being separated from their pets during the day love drop cam because then they can like see what their dog's doing. <laughs> so that's the reason why a lot of people like to have these. And then some people even use them as like a baby monitor. You can put it in your, your nursery. And it sounds great. Convenience, security. What could possibly go wrong? A woman was crashing on the couch of a friend in Los Angeles. And one day, after she'd been there for a few weeks, she looked at the bookcase and realized that a drop cam had been hidden on it, and it was staring right at her. This friend of hers had been potentially watching her with the drop cam, recording footage of her. She'd been you know, changing her clothes by the couch and doing all the things we do when we think no one is around. It was very alarming to her. And she went to the police, and they told her, we're sorry, we can't do anything. People are allowed to have a camera in their home, especially if it's not in a private place, like it was in his living room. But when I spoke to experts about this, they, um, they think the police were, were incorrect, um, that by having a camera in your home that streams not just video, but also audio, people may be violating the Wiretap Act, which, uh, which says you can't you know, eavesdrop on somebody. There are also civil claims intrusion upon seclusion. And this is becoming more of a problem. I came across the story of Airbnb guests in Canada who found three drop cams hidden in the home that they had rented, which is just, you know, really freaky. And in another example that sort of turns the tables on the creeps, and although this one didn't involve the same brand, one guy's own cameras ended up being used as evidence against him. 
it was a local case here in San Francisco. A advertising tech executive had a bunch of cameras in his house, including two in his bedroom. Um, and I, I think I know what he wanted to capture with those two cameras, one within the, the ceiling. But his girlfriend at one point called the police. Uh, she said that he had attacked her. And when the officers saw the cameras around the apartment, they ended up seizing the footage and they got a warrant to watch it. And it, it showed him, you know, like kicking and hitting his girlfriend uh, 117 times. And so prosecutors used that to bring a case against him. That's senior editor of Real Future at Fusion, Kashmir Hill. Coming up next, we'll talk about how both the NSA and the world's largest maker of laptops are weakening the basic infrastructure of the Internet. Just ahead. This is an Important Cool podcast. Important Cool is an international worker-owned journalism collective. Find out more at importantcool.com. Welcome back to Snow Crash Radio. I'm Jonah Meadows. My next guest is the world-renowned security technologist, Bruce Schneier. He's been writing about and working on computer security and cryptography for more than 20 years He is one of the best when it comes to explaining complicated information security stuff to non-cryptographers like myself. He's a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. He's chief technology officer of Resilient Systems, which is an information security company. And his most recent book is called Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. And those are battles that aren't just being fought by nation states. The NSA, the Chinese government, they get a lot of attention. But these are battles also being waged by big business. Corporations are using big data to shape the ads we get, the news we get, the prices we're offered. It's profiling us. And more data is being produced all the time. It's like this new kind of pollution. And both sides, government and corporations, they're sharing this data voluntarily. But they're also losing the data involuntarily to criminals and spies and hackers of all kinds. So we're giving up a lot by going along with all this corporate and government surveillance. And I guess it's because we generally feel like it's giving us convenience and security. We're not going to stop carrying around cell phones just because they're tracking us. So I asked Bruce, what are some of the ways that we're generating this data and being tracked without ever really thinking about it? You know, it's really everywhere. The way to conceptualize it is that computers produce data. Computers naturally produce data as a byproduct of their operation. And any time we interact with a computer, it produces data about that interaction. So whether it is making a phone call or making a credit card purchase or using an ATM machine or using our computer, there's constantly data being produced about what we're doing on those machines. That's fundamentally surveillance data. It's data about what we're doing. And that's the data that's being collected, stored, and used. And how much of that data is really under our own control? None of it's under our control. I mean, that's the point. These computers are often third-party computers. And it's the cell phone network. It's the websites. It's all of the cloud services we use. It's the credit card system. It's the banking system. These are computers and companies that are not under our control. 
And we see this in the data breaches. If you remember the Target breach or the Home Depot breach or the Anthem Health breach, hundreds of millions of people's information was released. And that information was not under the control of the users. It was under the control of those companies. That's what makes this a hard problem. That this, It is our data, but it's not our databases. It is our problem, but it's not our security solution. Are there any laws that require businesses to encrypt personal data or take any precautions? Or what's the legal framework currently when it comes to how secure corporations need to keep our personal data? Basically, there are no rules. There are some rules in certain circumstances for financial data, for some types of health data, for video rentals data, but they often aren't rules about how the data is protected. They are rules prohibiting the sale or use in some circumstances. For most of us, for most data, it is simply a free-for-all. That data can be bought and sold without our knowledge and consent. Now, it's not just hackers getting access of it. We have instances of these data brokers selling the data for criminals, so not even illegal. It's perfectly legal for them to sell data to criminals. I mean, it's probably bad PR, and they shouldn't do it, but there are no rules. And that is the big problem. There are really no rules about how our data is collected, stored, used, protected, checked for accuracy, deleted, none of that. It is whatever the companies want to do. And, and your point is well taken that when these companies suffer a data breach, it is the individuals who suffer, much more so than the company. And that is a, uh, that's a market failure. Right? That's something a market can't fix because I can't go to a data broker and say, you know, I'm going to leave you and go to a different one if you don't protect my data. I have no business relationship with them. I'm simply data in their database. So that makes it difficult for markets to fix. And it seems like the market incentive right now is toward invading people's privacy. It seems like a lot of companies, especially in the mobile space, in the cloud computing area, they're set up with their business model to invade people's privacy, to collect and trade off their data. How do we switch the incentives around from accumulating and storing people's data towards something else? Well, right now, surveillance is the business model of the internet. And you're right, there are incentives to collect everything. And that's the promise of big data. Collect it all, save it all, use it all. It's so cheap to save, you might as well, and maybe there's some value in it. Right? That's why it's all being collected. That's why it's all being saved. And the incentives are to do that. If you want to change that, you have to change the incentives. And the way you do that is through law. You make something illegal. I mean, just like we make certain labor practices illegal or certain types of food additives illegal. We recognize that the market alone will not fix these problems, and we pass regulations limiting what can be done in those industries. And data is no different. If there are things we want data brokers to do, if there are things we want never to be collected, never to be sold, if there are accuracy rules we want, if there are rules for secure storage we want, we have to pass them as regulations. That's going to be the only way to change the incentive. Businesses react to market incentives. And going to jail is, is a negative market incentive. If you pass a rule, you pass a law, companies will follow it. You're listening to Snow Crash Radio. I'm Jonah Meadows. Our guest is computer security expert Bruce Schneier, author most recently of Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. 
Will people, if they're informed, will they willingly end up giving up even more privacy in exchange for a feeling of security or convenience? I think if people are informed, they'll make more informed choices. And in some cases, those choices might be giving up some privacy. And in some cases, those choices might be not giving up privacy. One of the problems we have is that there's not a lot of transparency, that people don't realize how the data is being collected. You know, when you browse online, there might be 50 companies following you around with cookies as you go around the internet. Right? If those were 50 people standing behind your computer, peeking over your shoulder, you'd notice and you'd say, hey, this is a little creepy. You guys get out of here. But because it happens invisibly, people don't see it. People don't realize it's happening. So transparency, I think, in the end, will make people more concerned and more willing to protect their privacy. In some cases, I mean, they might give it up willingly, but it will allow people to make informed decisions, which the current system doesn't. Do you think that the current system laws that are set up for, you know, the old system of telecommunications, do you think they're being misapplied currently? In a lot of cases, the old laws are being misapplied. They were designed for older technology, for older uses of technology, and they are breaking in the edges as we move into the Internet, you move into Internet telephony, uh, everybody being a broadcaster, the worldwide communications. These are laws on police surveillance, laws against the NSA. They really were written for another time and don't really work today. Now, updating laws, I think, is, is really important for us to do. And the problems we have is if the laws aren't updated, the police, intelligence agencies, sort of everybody in power rushes to interpret them as liberally as possible in, in the new regime. So, for example, in the, we, we're having constitutional arguments about uh, automatic surveillance devices on cars and, and automobile surveillance. And it, what can be done with a warrant, what can be done without a warrant? Can you follow cars without a warrant? Can you attach devices to cars? Can you follow every car in the city through license plate capture and cameras? You know, what can be done? Now, the rules for following cars were invented in the 20s, when following a car meant you had a car, maybe four or five cars, and you would, it would be a lot of work to do. Now, following cars is trivially easy. And, and with that change, you need changes in the law. And that's just one example. There are sort of hundreds of different surveillance systems which are different now than they used to be. And uh, I think we really do need to update the law to reflect current technology, or better yet, to figure out how laws can be made technologically invariant, that they can work regardless of technology. The case of the automatic license plate readers is pretty interesting. They're debating several different laws about that in Illinois right now. And I think that's an example where the private sector is a lot less limited when it comes to storing and accumulating data, and it creates a kind of uh, a partnership between law enforcement being able to collect some things, the private sector being able to collect some different things, and them being able to legally share so it creates a, you know, national license plate databases. Right, and here we're seeing an example of what I call the public-private surveillance partnership that governments and corporations work together for surveillance. So license plate capture is primarily done by companies, by companies who are in the repo business. They're looking for cars for repossession. And they scan license plates all over the country constantly, 
uh, on the streets, on highways, in parking lots, in shopping malls, everywhere, and have a huge database of license plates with time date stamps. That data is, is private. They give it to the police, Department of Homeland Security, because they're nice, and, and, and why not? And now that data is being used by law enforcement. Right? They also use, where they can, government records of license plates attached to people, automobile registration, to uh, identify cars. Right? So data now flows back and forth. And there might be laws that protect us from government collecting this data, but there's no laws about private companies collecting this data, and no laws about them giving it to government if they want to. And so here is our data sloshing around between uh, governments and corporations without, you know, without a lot of control. When it comes to the government, you've been a critic of the NSA's current mission in the way that it is on both offense and defense at the same time. Why is it bad to be attacking and strengthening networks at the same time? Well, they're contradictory missions. You can't actually do both. The NSA's mission was born out of the Cold War. And the Cold War, the separation made sense. The NSA had two missions, to spy on the Soviet Union and to protect the United States from being spied upon. And the reason the NSA could do both is that the systems were different. Right? They could try to break Russian radios and protect U.S. military radios because they were different radios, right? different hardware, different manufacturers, different frequencies, different everything. Right? That changed with the Internet. It's now one world, one network, one system. We're all using TCP IP and Microsoft Windows and Cisco routers and Chrome browsers. So you can't simultaneously attack and defend. Every time you attack, you weaken defense. Every time you defend, you weaken attack. And the NSA has to make these decisions. If they find, and I make this up, a vulnerability in Microsoft Windows, they can do one of two things with it. They can fix it. Right? They can call Microsoft and say, fix this security problem. And by doing that, they make all of us safer, but make it harder to spy on the bad guys. Or they can do the other thing. They can not tell Microsoft. They can keep all of us vulnerable in order to spy on the bad guys. But they can't do both. It's either an Internet that is insecure for everybody or an Internet that is secure for everybody. And that's not a choice they can make. And putting those two missions under the same roof today makes that much, much harder. We would be far better off if the organizations were separate, if they weren't competing with each other. What happens when those exploits, when the NSA finds a theoretical exploit and uses it for their own offensive, you know, uses it to spy on Iran or North Korea or something? What happens when that falls into the private sector? Well, that, that happens all the time, right? Today's NSA secrets become tomorrow's PhD theses and the next day's hacker tools. Every time the NSA uses an exploit, they risk other people finding out about it, right? Stuxnet was a great example. Stuxnet was a U.S. and Israeli cyber weapon fired against Iran that is public and everybody knows about, never knows how it works. The code has been disassembled and, you know, you find the code in all sorts of uh, criminal exploits. And so by stockpiling and using, you're giving the bad guys the same tools. You know, so vulnerabilities are very fragile. 
that by using them, you, you in a sense lose them. So yes, that also is something to think about. It's, very, it's a very complex ecosystem. Made vulnerabilities and, and security and fixing things. And the NSA is, is, is very much involved in it and is very secretive about it. This is something that's too important to leave to secretive rules, uh, interpretations that are made outside of court, made, made not by people who can balance all of the issues, but just by the NSA. Is there not a danger that strengthening the entire infrastructure, making it more secure for everyone, you're also strengthening the security for these small number of bad actors? They'll be more protected, that they'll be more able to carry out attacks. And isn't that sort of the NSA argument that, you know, they only need to succeed once? Yeah, but that's, that's all, that's all fear-mongering. Every part of our infrastructure, everything we do, can be used by good and bad people, right? The roads, you can drive on them, and bank robbers can drive on them. Telephones, we can talk on them, and kidnappers can talk on them, right? I can go out to eat dinner, a murderer can eat at the same restaurant. All of the infrastructure we build can be used by everybody, the good people and the bad people. That's the way it works, but you cannot have it any other way. The reason society succeeds is there are more good people than bad people. If we build the internet insecure for everybody because of these few people who we want to catch, we are hurting everybody. Just like if we ripped up all the roads and said, no more cars because bank robbers use them. You're listening to Snow Crash Radio. We're talking with Bruce Schneier, the author of Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. And Bruce has been writing about cryptography and information security for more than 20 years. Could you explain a little bit about what the crypto wars are? The crypto wars were 1990s, when the government for the first time said that encryption is going to kill us all, basically. They said that encryption meant that they couldn't solve crimes, that criminals would be using encryption, and they could never be listened to. And this was a horrible disaster. And the only possible solution was to have insecure cryptography so that the FBI could listen in. We told them that was nonsense. They were, they were wrong. Insecure cryptography is bad. They went away, and, and it's important to realize that it's 20 years later, and we have not seen a crime spree of unsolvable crimes because of cryptography. So it's important to realize that 20 years after the crypto wars, the FBI has been proven wrong, that, that their fears were not justified. And I say that because we are now entering what we're calling the second crypto wars that the new FBI director, James Comey, is saying the exact same things, that encryption is going to make crimes unsolvable, and that the only solution is to give him a backdoor into encryption systems. We are again saying this is an insecurity, it's a disaster, uh, we cannot do this in the way you want, and we'll all be less secure because of it, and we'll see how it shakes out. But again, uh, we're going to find that the FBI is... Uh, there's no evidence this is actually true, that they're just scaremongering. And, uh, you know, things will go on, hopefully, and we will not install these backdoors like they want. Are there other examples of encryption technology where there have been backdoors installed? Oh, there's lots. There's a, there's a system uh, in Greece that where backdoors put into the, uh, the cell phone system. 
and it was used by actually we don't know who some criminal organization to spy on the government. I mean, there are lots of examples like that. Their their backdoors are added into all sorts of systems, either willingly or unwillingly, and they're found by criminals. They're found by governments. They're found by all sorts of people and used for all sorts of reasons. And it's very hard to design security systems, even if you're trying to do it well, let alone if you're trying to do it badly. What kind of security solutions can we design that take user error out of the equation, that take, you know, one person clicking on a bad link or, you know, taking their computer home when they shouldn't, to take that user error out of the equation and still build robust, secure systems? How is that possible? I'm not a design guy. Uh, I don't think I can build a computer that doesn't allow someone to take it home. I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the example you use is actually a good one because it shows how complex the problem is. So this is a computer that somehow beeps when it's going someplace it shouldn't. So it has to know where it should go. I mean, these are hard problems. We expect computers to be used by people. And when people are allowed to use them, they can abuse them. Right? They, can, they can make mistakes. They can do things wrong. It is extremely difficult to make a computer that you can't use wrong because how do we know what wrong is? I mean, there are, there are tricks in some circumstances, but that is an incredibly complex question. And I don't think in the end it is possible. I mean, just like I can't design a back door that only people with the right morals can use it, I can't design a computer that only the right person can put in their bag. Do you think that easier to use encryption software, easier to use encrypted communication tools will help? Or is that really sort of a distracting band-aid that gets people away from calling for the, the real policy, the, the legal changes that are required? I think both are required. I mean, everything helps. Nothing is a panacea. Right? We're living in a world where policy can uh, subvert technology and technology can subvert policy. So easy-to-use tools are an important part of the solution, and policy changes are an important part of the solution. It's not one or the other. You need both of them. This makes it a hard problem. This makes it a very hard problem, and, and one of the reasons we are you know, still dealing with this. But the only way to, to solve this is, is to look at both halves. Do you run into people who say, you know, so what? We knew all this. You know, spies are going to spy in reference to the Snowden revelations. How do you explain the sort of simultaneous shock on the one hand and, you know, the people expecting it and not being surprised at the same time? Well, they're surprised and not surprised. You know, for me, there was not a lot of surprise in the documents. I mean, this is the sort of thing we expected the NSA to do. You, know, you watch any movie with NSA as the villain, this is exactly what they're doing. But the sheer reality of it, the details, the fact that it was happening was very surprising. So it was both surprising and not surprising at the exact same time. This is just for me. I mean, I'm sure there are people who expected this. You know, one of the things about the Stone documents is they sort of made every paranoid NSA fearing person normal <laughs> because they justified every one of their fears, which is a little freaky. You know, I, I, I don't know how to, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it to, to the people. And the, there is fatigue, certainly, you know, simply because, you know, for a lot of non-techies, all the stories start being the same after a while. You know, and that's just, I think, the way it is also. Do you think there's an element of the surveillance that's not really about bringing more security? Because it seems like we're creating a bigger and bigger haystack and needles are still getting through, you know, attacks are still happening that 
aren't being prevented by mass surveillance in France or in other places, could there be some secondary objectives besides security for mass collection of all this data? I mean, it could be. depends on your country. I mean, it's, it's always going to be security of some sort, right? In China, it's security against, you know, dissident ideas and rival political thought and, and other, you know, other free thinking. In the United States, it is much more about security from crime and terrorism. I think there's a lot of security from, uh, you know, making a bad decision. In a sense, these organizations have to do everything because their jobs are on the line. And it's less security of us and more security of their careers. So there's a lot of complicated things going on. Primarily, I think, in the United States, the people doing this believe that this is making us safer. They minimize the costs and the costs in in money and in liberties and privacy. And they say this is a good idea. Also in the corporate sector, you've got more and more pervasive workplace monitoring. Corporate surveillance is all very, very different. There's no security motive. The motive is all control. Right, the motive is uh, psychological manipulation, persuasion, advertising. You mentioned workplace surveillance, control of employees. So no, it's a very different motivation in the corporate world. I mean, there it's not about you know, security and crime. It's about influencing individuals, manipulation. Is there any risk of a crossover when you start talking about doing social experiments on you know, massive amounts of Facebook users? That could start to influence politics as well, couldn't it? I mean, it certainly could. I mean, there are lots of uh, studies that show that Facebook could influence elections if they wanted to, and they might not even do it wittingly. They might do it unwittingly. But yes, as soon as you start having this data, it's going to be used to different purposes. Where this controlled data is used in politics is in elections. I mean, you know, candidates are just as much advertisers as companies, and they are selling their products in exactly the same way. And they manipulate people not to buy, but to vote, which is in a sense purchasing in in the political process. So all of that corporate surveillance and and dossier collecting and influencing and manipulating and figuring out what people are interested in directly affects our election process. And elections, you know, seem to be much more about brands and advertising than they are about politics and ideas these days. How do we make this an issue in the next election? Now, in order to make this an issue, we need to make it an issue. I mean, it sounds circular, but things are issues that we talk about. And if we want this to be an issue in the next election, the coming elections, we need to do two things. We need to observe surveillance. We need to talk about surveillance. That if we are talking about this, if this is important to us, it will become an issue. If it is not important to us, then it won't become an issue. So we get to decide whether this is an issue or not. And we decide by voting with our conversations, with what we are concerned about. All right, that's how to make it an issue. All right, Bruce, thanks very much for your time today. Hey, thank you. I've been speaking with Bruce Schneier, the author of Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. Among many other books about information security, he blogs over at Schneier on Security. We'll have a link to that at our website, scradio.org. Next up, spyware that came pre-installed from the world's largest maker of laptops. Right after this. Music on today's show comes from Al Peters, Big Data, and Nine Inch Nails.
You're listening to Snow Crash Radio. I'm Jonah Meadows. Earlier this year, Lenovo, the world's largest maker of laptops, was found to be pre-installing a kind of ad tracking, bloatware, adware kind of thing called Superfish. And it made quite a stink because it could intercept everything, not just unencrypted traffic like over a public Wi-Fi, but everything, including your financial details, all your passwords, anything you put into an encrypted website. My guest is Jeremy Jalula. He's staff technologist for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. My first question is, what does that little padlock mean when you visit certain websites? What the lock icon means is that the website you're connecting to has sent what's called a certificate, which is really it's just a file with a bunch of information in it. And your browser has said, yes, that certificate, there's this magic code in it, which indicates, based on some really fancy math, that it was signed by someone I trust. Who I trust is a, there's a list of another set of certificates which come with your browser or come with your computer. They're just permanently stored on your computer. And they're what's called certificate authorities. So they're the companies you might have heard of like VeriSign or uh, GeoTrust or DigiCert, or you may not have heard of them. But basically they're companies that are in the process of making sure that the websites that you go to actually are the ones they say they are. And how did Lenovo break that system? So uh, what happened was Lenovo installed this software called Superfish, which installed another certificate on your computer. And the problem was it installed the same root certificate. So basically this software said, hey, I'm going to pretend to be a certificate authority too, and I'm going to intercept everything that comes into your computer, and I'll sign it off as being A-OK. And it did it for the purposes of targeted advertising, so that even if you connected to an encrypted website, they could insert ads into, your, into the web pages you view. But the problem is, because they used the same root certificate on every computer without very strong encryption, researchers were very quickly able to break that and then show how anyone could sign and pretend to be that Superfish root certificate. And that led to an alert from the Department of Homeland Security (laughs) telling people to uninstall this pre-installed Lenovo software? Precisely. So it led to alerts from, I mean, basically security researchers all over the web, including the Department of Homeland Security, uh, went crazy because this is, it means that any computer with this software installed, there's no way to know for sure whether or not the site you're connecting to really is who it claims to be. So there's no security, essentially, in your browser. That would be vulnerable to anyone who wanted to intercept your login data or your account information or anything that you transmit? Precisely. So anything you transmit over uh, an encrypted connection could have been intercepted. Uh, and it doesn't matter what website you are connecting to. Uh, that's, that's the worst part, is it affects all encrypted websites equally because the vulnerability is on your computer. And are there other examples besides this Lenovo Superfish of, of similar certificate interception? There are. So it turns out that the company that wrote the software library, which Superfish used, the company called Commodia, And they actually provided their library to a bunch of different software developers, primarily content filtering companies, you know, if you have like parental control software on your computer, but also some companies that claimed they were producing privacy-enhancing technology. And even beyond that, other companies which have tried to do a similar thing have also encountered similar vulnerabilities. 
So basically what it comes down to is anytime a company starts messing with the root certificates on your computer and intercepting your encrypted traffic, chances are uh, it's opening up a security vulnerability. What can be done to close this vulnerability? So uninstalling Superfish and then uh, deleting this Superfish certificate uh, is if you're if you had Superfish installed, that is how you can essentially ensure that you are safe again. Uh, unfortunately, uh, sort of speaking generally in terms of preventing something like this from happening in the future, there are no good solutions just because of the way the current certificate system and encryption on the web is set up. Really? Yeah, it's kind of scary. What's stopping another company from doing the same thing right now? Or what about when AT&T is offering you can save $30 by entering some ad tracking program? Is there a way to to do what Superfish was doing without having the vulnerability? Uh, I, it, it's difficult. Uh, it takes a lot of essentially very difficult engineering work. So the, the browser developers, you know, Google for Chrome or Mozilla for Firefox or even Microsoft for Internet Explorer, uh, have been working on and debugging uh, the intricate uh encryption technology and the certificate validation systems uh, for a long, long time. And they've got, you know, tons of people working on this, you know, as their full-time job. And most uh, software companies that are, you know, only doing this sort of as a side thing, like it's a subpart of their, you know, a greater, you know, software goal that they have, aren't necessarily going to put the same care into it. And so while it is technically possible to do, it's definitely also technically difficult to do. How can people avoid installing other software, whether it's ad blocking software, privacy software, parental control software, that would be vulnerable to the same sort of man in the middle attack? I mean, essentially, it comes down to knowing about uh, and, and educating yourself about the, the software you're installing. Um, on, uh, as a result of this, uh, as far as I know, all of the software that has the same vulnerability is now being flagged in things like, you know, the Windows uh, Security Essentials mm -hmm. and Windows Defender. Uh, but in the future, uh, there's, you know, I'm sure there will be other similar vulnerabilities. And until a security researcher discovers it, uh, there's, you know, it won't. Sh it, there's not, there's no sort of pattern to scan for from these programs, right. uh, essentially. Do you think it does serious damage to Lenovo's brand? I mean, they're a Chinese company and and the largest maker of laptops in the world. Do you think it hurts them? I, I definitely think it does. I mean, they certainly didn't do this intentionally. They didn't want to break security. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, they've also, uh, you know, sometimes we see corporations dig down and, and be stubborn and say, no, we weren't at fault. Here, uh, they may not have, you know, legally admitted fault, but they've basically said they're going to stop installing this sort of bloatware and crapware on their laptops in the future. And so it'll be a, a fresh, clean install of whatever operating system you have. Maybe minimal stuff. If you order it with Microsoft Office or something, it'll come with that. But they won't be installing things like this in the future. So the, the chance of your laptop coming fresh to you with the security vulnerability is much lower. Yeah. Well, it definitely gives everyone a reason to take a closer look at all of the stuff that comes pre-installed on oh, yeah. your phone or your computer. Definitely. I've been speaking with Jeremy Jalula. He's staff technologist for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And that is it for this episode of Snow Crash Radio. It's been produced by me, Jonah Meadows, with importantcool.com. 
You can find out more there or sign up for the podcast feed over at scradio.org and subscribe with your podcatcher of choice. You will get uh, notified when new episodes are posted. Send any questions or comments to us at info at scradio.org. And thanks for listening.